0: Hello everyone, I'm Dave Brunner, Associate Professor in the radio program in the Communication Department at Columbia College Chicago, and what you're about to listen to is the semester long work of a group of radio and audio documentary students who produced this project, COVID-19, Where Are We Now? It is the story of the pandemic in this present time, the struggles, the hurdles, the changes that we have all gone through. Each story is a separate one in a bigger mosaic here, and I invite you to listen to all of it. This is COVID-19, Where Are We Now? on WCRX.
1: I work as a hospitalist in Florida, and I am a father of four children. During last year's pandemic, I faced something I was not expecting. As the world started to understand the serious consequences of a virus, I started to face a new reality. People did not want to go to the hospital because of the fear of getting infected with COVID. Census started to drop in most hospitals. Work hours needed to be reduced. New adjustments were needed.
2: I was prepared to work long hours. I was prepared to work with this disease that nobody pretty much knew how to treat it but I was never prepared to be dealing with some monetary issues in my own home. Hi, my name is Rebecca. I am a physician. I am working in an outpatient community center in Northern Florida. See, people were afraid to go to the hospital. My husband hours, instead of being 12 hour shift, were originally cut back into eight hours and later into six hours. My clinic hours, there were some days that I would go in and there were no patients. Our waiting room was completely empty.
1: I started to alternate between 12 and 8 hours depending on the workload. It translated in lower monthly income. It was going to affect our lives from many different angles from an economic perspective. All our vacation plans and home improvements needed to be cancelled or delayed. We had to learn to manage the money wisely. I have many responsibilities, including schools and university tuitions, apartments, and transportation. Along with this economic struggle came politics and changing government, closed schools, restaurants, and thousands of job losses.
2: Eventually, the virus got into our community. The hospital hours became busier and from 12-hour shifts, sometimes even to 16-hour shift. However, the clinic really didn't even recover. A lot of people lose their job, and by losing their jobs, they lose their health insurance. So they have no way of going, getting into the clinic now.
1: The fear of an economic collapse was there, bothering me every second. This past winter, a vaccine started started to show up. It meant hope. It meant things were going to change back close to normal.
2: The vaccine eventually brought hope to a lot of healthcare workers.
1: It was a game changer.
2: However, the clinic still feels like we're still transitioning. Maybe we're transitioning into our new normal.
1: Despite all this stressful situation, my wife was always there giving me the right advices and helping me in many different ways. This is just another chapter in my life where there are no options just to keep working hard and protect your family at all costs. I have to be grateful because nobody had any health issues during all this time, and that made things a lot easier. No matter the situation and how difficult things may seem, a united family can always overcome any obstacles. As the
3: coronavirus swept over the world, nursing homes rapidly implemented new procedures that changed how residents are taken care of. Meet Jeannie, a certified nursing assistant at an assisted living facility that offers residents the daily care they need.
4: And what I do on the daily at work is I bathe my patients, I feed my patients if they need to be fed, basically assist them with
3: their activities of daily living. Because the beginning of the pandemic hit the U.S. so fast, there was a lot of uncertainty surrounding the new normal we were all experiencing. So
4: the beginning for sure was extremely, extremely hectic. People um, were still unsure um, if they should wear masks or um, goggles or shields. We were unaware of um, whether like it was airborne or through contact. And
3: um, the biggest downfall for sure um, was like the lack of guidelines. Because there was so much confusion, many facilities eventually decided to implement as many safety procedures as they could afford in order to keep as much peace as possible. At a different assisted living facility, Donald, Megan, and JC were racing to keep their residents safe. This leadership team reacted quickly in order to avoid catastrophe.
5: We shut down three weeks before everybody else did. And we created a bubble in our building. And we tried to keep everything as normal as possible. But well, we screen everyone that comes in the door. We have put a protective barrier around uh, our front desk.
3: While the shutdown was taking place, Jeannie's facility began to implement procedures that many other facilities had also put into place.
4: Um the main ones I would say would be um the temperature checks in the beginning of your shift. We have to get COVID tested, I think, twice a week. So um we started off with gloves, the gowns, and um, a mask. Um but now so like if you're directly working with COVID patients, you wear um the the um, shoe covers, you wear the gown, you wear the gloves, you wear um like the hat cover, you wear um, an N95
3: mask, and not um, just
4: a like, regular
3: surgical mask, and you wear goggles and a shield. And the changes to procedures and uniforms did leave some feeling safer. At Donald, Megan, and JC's facility, an open line of communication was established to keep residents and their families at ease. And we made a commitment early on
5: to the families and to the residents as a whole that we were gonna do everything together from beginning to end, and we were gonna do everything humanly possible to make sure that everyone survived.
6: And we were very transparent um, with our residents and their families. Right off the bat, we were very communicative.
3: But at other facilities, changes took a little longer to implement, which left some feeling uneasy especially during the first few months of the pandemic.
4: The staff for sure was very upset and that's why we were so low on staff because number one, um, we weren't being compensated. Number two, um, there was
3: a um, lack of PPE. This however, was not the case at all nursing homes. Many did find themselves in a position where they could fight the pandemic. This over-preparedness led to far fewer casualties overall.
7: We had our masks on. We had PPE ready just in case, so we are. We had backup on top of backup.
5: We had been using the peroxide-based sanitizer to prevent residents from uh, catching viruses or colds, and I think that had a lot also to do with making sure um, our residents were safe.
7: We donated to the fire department to our the fire department. N95
5: masks and the hospital and yeah. hospital, and we also donated PPEs to. A property, uh, one of our competitors, they had an outbreak.
3: Because this facility was prepared to beat the pandemic, they helped meet the needs of the community around them. But while the safety and well-being of everyone was the main concern, things still became harder for staff at other facilities, such as Genies.
4: So, if you work with a COVID patient, um, you should be getting paid, you know, like an extra amount of money compared um to your coworker um that's working um, with a non-COVID patient because number one. You know, like we're putting ourselves at risk, and um, number two, sometimes the PPE um they were giving us was not adequate. It's somewhat of a slap to the face if you come to work and you're doing all these things and you're not being acknowledged for them. And sometimes staff would come to work and would contract COVID and then can't go back to their homes. So you know, like we were told in the contract that like like if you do contract COVID. Um the facility um would um provide you a room um to sleep for um x amount of days. So when that happened, um the rooms were um not available. So um there were tons of nurses having to sleep in their cars. Yeah, it was yeah, like it was a very sad time in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Very much so.
3: Aside from the financial and physical toll many nurses endured during the beginning of the pandemic, there was a major emotional burden that they faced as well. End of life experiences for residents at nursing homes is unfortunately almost always a given. But losing residents to COVID is a completely different story.
4: I think my patients alone known that I've taken care of, maybe I would say like nine passed away. With COVID, like sometimes I work on with the patient at night and then like the next two nights I'll come back to work and they say um they passed away. I'm like, what just happened? Like that was way too fast. Like what were the symptoms? Yeah, it was tough because you you look at yourself and you're like,
3: what could I have done them differently? At the other facility, however, it was a different story. In fact, none of the residents passed away from COVID. But at many times, despite these efforts, it still seemed like we couldn't beat the virus. Healthcare workers were working as hard as they could, despite being burdened with their own situations. And during this time, overworked teams were continually referred to as heroes.
4: One thing I didn't feel like was a hero, because I wasn't being treated, I'm like a hero. Because you know, like we have lack of PPE all the time, and we have lack of um resources. Constantly, I'm short of staff and working doubles back to back, and like with no compensation. It was like, well, like is this how you treat your heroes? One thing I will say is that I'm happy um that society finally acknowledged that nurses and other um like healthcare members are actually I'm um, doing more stuff um, than I'm just taking, you know, I'm like blood pressure Mm -hmm. and I'm giving um, medicine because like
3: we are so much more than that. During the pandemic, this recognition extended throughout the entire healthcare community. The dedication that workers in this field all displayed was finally being highlighted. We as leaders, there were times
5: where we were stressed and we were concerned, but the staff, the leaders, they did a tremendous job in making sure that we got through this. They were here for the residents, you know, they weren't here for a paycheck. They weren't, they were here genuinely to take care of the residents and ensure that they were taken care of. They were here more than they were at home with their families. The residents
3: were truly appreciative. This appreciation is evident at many nursing homes, including Jeannie's, which is what helps keep her committed to doing what she loves.
4: I do what I do because I enjoy taking care of people because I enjoy seeing the um, progression in someone's health. Uh, you feel better knowing that you played a part in someone returning onto their baseline um, level. So that's,
3: yeah, that's why I do what I do. And although the pandemic was rough for many, the shared experience faced within this community in a bittersweet sort of way brought people closer.
7: The bond between me and like the residents, it, it just grew which is was, was just so great to see like all of us together in the activity world with me and the residents just, just grew so much.
3: The satisfaction of seeing patients and residents improve is the motivating force behind why healthcare workers do what they do. And despite the many frustrations of the pandemic, healthcare workers have proven time and time again that they can beat the odds and will continue to do so to keep their communities thriving.
8: As queer people, like, it is it is so important that we get to go to nightclubs. As queer people, it is so important that we get to be, like, around our chosen family and around the people that we care about. And I think that maybe I didn't honor that. Maybe I didn't realize that at the time, right? Because, you know, back when it was just, it was normal and things were regular, like, I would just be like, girl, I have to go do another gig. Oh, girl, I don't even want to get into drag, whatever. And, you know, the things that I would do to, like, have that, have that all back. I am Regina. Um, I also go by a regular girl in drag. You know, first and foremost, know that a regular girl is hot, but she's also, like, she's she's hot, but, like, she has, like, goals. She has, like, ideals. You know what I mean? I think I take it to heart when I state that I don't feel as though um, my drag is like so far removed from who I am as a person. I think my politics and the politics of a regular girl one and the same in that like my drag and my drag aesthetic is about freedom and utopia and the future. You know, I already fully believe that trans people are from another time. Like I fully believe that we are like visions of a future past whatever and I think that I just want us to get there already. Like, I just want us to go to Utopia and just be there already. Okay, so March 2020, I was like in the middle kind of 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 my life, right? I was in the middle of Truly, like, performing at a bar, like, every other night, like, it was my, it was my sole job. I didn't have a day job. I was only being a drag queen. And then on the 15th, we heard about the shutdowns that were happening, and I had a gig that exact day. So, like, as I'm getting into my Uber, and, like, as, like, as I'm putting on my makeup, getting into my Uber, getting to the club, like, we were told, like, okay, we'll have limited capacity we're not taking any dollar bills we're only doing venmos that was the time that it had set in for me that like oh this is real like this pandemic situation is like an actual thing i think it's been hard and i i i think first and foremost like i have lost a lot of friends to um to covid like both um you know like through mental health um you know, like suicide, and then also through like, just the actual like, sickness, right? Like, I've lost a lot of people, um, people who I care about. It's really affected a lot of my friends and a lot of people that I care about to not get not be able to just see each other not be able to spend time with like, you know, people who don't make you feel like you're weird or different. I have a I have a lovely drag family of Mercy, um, my other daughter, that girl, and my first daughter, a political girl. Um, and you know, the four of us are like stoner bitches. Um, and like, I love that, who are here for like trans revolution and um, trans futures. So like, get into it.
9: Um, Mercy, uh, I also go by Mercy out of drag. Um, everyone loves her regular everyone swills around her she's really just like a fosterer of community now like it feels like she's almost like the heart of chicago to me at least of just like kind of being alone and trans and just getting to exist only for yourself and your own four walls i've seen it really open her up and make her just a much more confident and loving and like fun person not that she wasn't before in any way shape or form she was already all of those things but it's just made her so much more of all of those. And like, just isolation has is like kind of brought that upon us, brought the age of a regular, if you will.
8: I know that it's bad and I know that it's, you know, I know that it's hard because a lot of folks work day jobs that they hate. A lot of folks work day jobs where they get misgendered. A lot of folks work day jobs where their um you know at the end of the day like their reality and what they want their lives to be like does not match up with what they're faced and nightclubs have a magical potential and drag shows specifically have this transformative uh aspect about them where you forget all of that and you you leave your body and you go somewhere else for the night and you know that is the feeling and the the, the passion that i am really missing the most and the passion that I think is really missing from the community there's a certain spark or energy in nightlife there's the the serendipity of the nightclub that I think um does not necessarily exist in a digital space in that way you know um I think that what I miss the most about performing live is the aspect of like doing shots with somebody like dancing on the floor with somebody you know what I mean like kind of the um the spontaneity and the all the different question marks that exist um when you're face to face with people and you have instances where you can be um you know genuinely creative in the moment that spontaneous energy is is what I miss from the club but it can also be kind of a driving force behind you as a maker um and I think that that attitude has spread itself like and manifested itself into my daily life I feel like um Both as a performer and as a creator and as a person, like I am a lot more confident in the choices that I make. I trust my vision a lot more. And I think that I'm able to, you know, set out the things that I achieve to do while also surprising myself along the way. Find that spontaneity in your life and um, allow yourself to be surprised by yourself.
10: One day we were in regular school, and the next day the whole world had turned upside down.
11: Two of the most affected aspects of daily life during the pandemic are religion and education. Both require large groups to be together in close quarters, which is unsafe with COVID-19 about. One religious private school in Hartsdale, New York, has had to adapt not only how they teach, but how they pray.
12: Most days at school start with Tfilah, start with the, with a prayer service that is sometimes introspective, sometimes a lot of singing, it really probably depends a little bit on each student's individual interests. On, on, on Mondays and Thursdays, what we would call Torah reading days, the whole community usually gathering by grade together. We're not allowed to have that many people in a room. We're not allowed to sing aloud. Um, it has put a real damper on things.
11: The LaFell School is known for its sense of community, or kehilah, as they call it in Hebrew. Rabbi Harry Pell, the rabbi in residence at the school, had a lot to think about when adapting prayer services to adhere to COVID-19 guidelines while staying true to Jewish law.
12: We've done. We've done what can be done. So um, even if we can't sing altogether indoors, sometimes we'll go outdoors where we're allowed to sing, um, or if we can't all be physically in the same space, we will have um, the Torah read in one room with a camera on and have that have Zoom on in all the other classrooms so everybody can hear the Torah being read on a on a Monday morning or a Thursday morning. It's not it's not ideal. It is probably what we would call the Leo, the least imperfect option, um, and it's been enough to get us through the year. But I I cannot wait till we can go back to more normal and organic feeling of uh, prayer in the morning
10: that day of purim um that was our kind of first run at doing some remote school stuff we didn't want to just kind of cancel purim we wanted to have students and families be able to celebrate. And so we started jumping on Zoom uh, for things like that. The principal of the school, Eric Basson, shed light onto how they came upon
11: the adaptations they've undertaken for both religion and academics.
10: From the academic perspective, we did know that there was some possibility of some upcoming school closure, and we had begun to do some very minimal training with faculty. That week before we closed, we said things like, you know, maybe you should Take some, transfer some of your files home or put them on a Google Drive. Be able to access them if if we need to not be in the building. We showed them very briefly Google Meet. We actually talked about Zoom, but we felt, eh, it's too, it's much more complicated than Google Meet. It's only gonna be for a little while, let's not bother.
11: As time went on and it became clear that e-learning was going to be the long-term solution, the school realized Google Meet was it going to cut it for what they needed,
10: religiously and academically. Um, We had a lot of decisions that we had to make as as it became more and more clear that this was going to be more than a couple of weeks. I think in April, we introduced Zoom. And I did it through a faculty meeting where I laid out some of the key differences between the, the two platforms, Google Meet and Zoom. And for a number of reasons at the time, now Google Meet has since um, emulated much of what Zoom does, but for a number of reasons at the time, we, we did feel that Zoom would be the actual better longer-term platform. A major aspect of the Lafelle School's education
11: is that the senior class spends two months in Israel. With COVID-19 travel restrictions, making this trip happen was very difficult, but it ended up becoming a victory.
12: Initially, it was unable to be reconciled. We thought we weren't going to be able to have any trips this year. And the eighth grade trip isn't happening. And we were going to do a ninth grade trip for last year's eighth graders that didn't get to go. And that can't happen, unfortunately. Um, but Israel is for for long-term programs is opening up. Our students gonna to have to are gonna to have to quarantine for 10 days, with like a real serious quarantine, like a prison-like quarantine. But they're they all signed up for it because it will buy them freedom for the next six and a half weeks to actually spend time with each other, travel around the country, um, be unmasked in their pods which they can't do right now in school. No, no one has spent a minute in school without a mask on since the beginning of the year, other than the you know privileged few of us who have offices, we can take our masks off, but no student has. Um, so for them, the ability like to be locked in with five friends for a 10-day quarantine and then get expanded to like a whole bunch of rooms together for the rest of the program and be able to travel around as a grade, it's, it's amazing. So uh, we leave on Sunday, April 11th and um, we, we did not know until actually last week that we were going to get permission to do it from the Israeli government. But we got the permission, and here we go.
11: It's been a rough year at the LaFell School. It hasn't been easy, but they got to make the trip to Israel. In a way, it could represent just a bit of normalcy creeping its way back into the school's community. Hopefully, more aspects of normal life in the Kehilah will return soon.
13: Since the pandemic began in December of 2020, countless families around the globe feared what would happen if just one family member tested positive for COVID-19. Others prepared for multiple family members getting sick. However, few prepared for the rare event of the entire household falling ill. This became the reality for the Miranowski family.
14: My name's Joanna Valchez and I am 35 years old.
15: Uh, Sean Miranowski, uh, father of three kids and married uh, 12 years.
10: I'm Vincent. I am 10 years old. Um, I'm Elliot. I'm nine years
16: old.
17: My son seven.
13: Joanna dispatches crisis workers to clients in crisis. And at the time, Sean worked taking rental equipment to various hospitals throughout Chicago, with a family member constantly in and out of emergency rooms plagued with COVID patients. It seemed like it was only a matter of time before COVID-19 found its way into this family's home. Who was the first person that showed the symptoms? I
14: was. Yeah, it was like the end of October is when it started. I didn't think I had COVID at first because I started with like nausea until I did go see my mom. Sunday, I started getting a fever.
15: My mother and my wife were in the same vicinity at the same time. And I forgot where they were, but I believe maybe at uh, Taekwondo, she came home and they said, Hey, you know, this person has it. I'm in contact with them.
13: And just like that, after months of online classes, COVID took one more thing from the kids.
7: They don't do Taekwondo anymore. It ended because COVID it was one of
13: the kids. Sadly, That was not the worst news of the week.
14: That Monday, my mother-in-law told me she got tested and she started losing her taste buds. And that's when I started to quarantine because I had a feeling it was COVID. Wednesday, I got tested. I got the results that Sunday. So yeah, we're like five days.
13: This first round of tests determined that Joanna, Vincent and Elliot all had COVID-19.
14: Everything just felt like exhausting, like I couldn't do it. I was just so tired, like I just wanted to sleep. I felt so weak. I didn't want to cooking. Yeah. I could not even look at food. Yeah. I didn't want to eat for like, at least a good two weeks. I just wasn't hungry. I like, think around that Monday or Tuesday, the kids started having fevers. Vinny and Elliot, they were not as bad. They had the cough and the fever. But other than that, they were fine. They would run around and act like they weren't sick.
13: According to the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Children's Hospital Association, children represent about 13% of all COVID-19 cases. Research suggests that children younger than ages 10 to 14 are less likely to become infected with the virus that causes COVID-19. It's especially rare when you take into consideration that only 53% of people living with someone who would contracted the disease were infected themselves in the first week. Thankfully, the symptoms that the kids had were very mild and very short-lived.
18: For like um, a week, maybe a week. couple of days, it felt just just that I kept coughing. I mean every day it felt like my temperature was going down but symptoms would go up or down. I did not like anything. that's why I thought
7: I wasn't sick, but in front of my forehead it felt like pretty hot. And we know about COVID-19.
13: Marceline, the youngest of the three, did originally get a negative test, but tested positive a week later. Her parents, out of concern for their children's mental health, decided to not tell any of their kids that any of them had COVID-19 until after they'd all recovered so that they would not be afraid for their own health or that of their mom and dad. Instead, they were just told that they were sick and had to stay in separate rooms. This is just
15: a very situation where, hey, you, you're you in this room, you're in that room, you're in that room. Stay away from each other as much as humanly possible.
13: Naturally, the kids were not big fans of this
18: idea. I didn't like it because we couldn't get out of our room. Yeah, me too. I didn't like it because I can leave bed only if we're
13: eating. Up to this point, Sean, who had tested negative originally, had been holding down the fort. However... Slowly but surely, symptoms started to appear. I told my boss, I was like,
15: hey, I'm feeling really sick. I don't think I should be in work tomorrow. And they're like, oh, okay, that's cool. I got my tested that day. Didn't get any results. But kept feeling bad, so got tested again. And Tuesday, my last day off. So then Wednesday, which I was supposed to be at work, I was like, hey, I actually tested positive for COVID. And they're like, cool, stay home.
14: Um, once he became symptomatic and got sick, I was starting to get a little better. And so I had to, like, help out
15: now. So I was still trying to push through it, but my body just started wearing down, and then we both had it at the same time. It was just, it was beginning horrible. And I was showing the worst symptoms. I decided to shake the short straw and sleep on the couch where you could feel the breeze coming in. So I think that's what attributed to me getting way sicker than, you know, I should have. I got up to about a 103 fever. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs>
14: It was hard. I mean, because I was still like dealing with the COVID.
15: Yeah, like during that time frame, especially with remote learning, it was just it was it was a really horrible time. I'd be on the couch, one eye opened, like, okay, the house is not on fire. All right, going back to sleep. It hurts to say, but I was I was such a bad father during this time. It, it was just it was rough. It was something I would never wish on my worst
13: enemy. Despite the severity of his own symptoms. Sean acknowledged a rather dark silver lining. I
15: was happy that I was the one who got it the worst because, you know, as a father, you don't want to see your kids or your wife be in that type of pain. You don't want them to be, you know, in any way, shape, or form where, hey, they could die. When I was working at the medical place, or in the ER sections, and you'd hear people screaming, crying, trying to catch their breath. I reflect on that and think about how horrible the screams were from those places and just being grateful and thankful that my family didn't get that bad.
13: With both parents now out of commission, everyday chores and duties like cooking, cleaning, and grocery shopping now seemed impossible, but they got by with a little help from Joanna's family.
14: My family helped a lot. They were bringing me the groceries. My parents would bring us food too, so they helped a lot to feed the kids. My mom would make them and make the food, and they would, like, bring it over here. Oh, they came and cleaned, too. My sisters came and they were, like, cleaning the bathroom, and I was like, uh, can you guys leave? Because I don't want to get you guys sick.
13: But as the saying goes, no good deed goes unpunished.
14: Then they all started experiencing it, too, after. But my mom was probably the worst. She already has... She's asthmatic and she had dealt with the previous sickness, so she was already like messed up. She's in the hospital, she can not breathe. We thought we were gonna lose her because she was up to like seven oxygen tanks, I think. And at the last minute, they decided to do a plasma transfusion, and then she slowly got there.
13: And though the family wide concern was that of recovery, another issue quickly became apparent. That was the day I was like,
15: I don't have any source of income. I don't know what I'm gonna do because they didn't tell me that they're gonna do uh the COVID relief uh for those two weeks. I I found out just because I looked at the bank account, you know, I was like I was like, man, how am I... like, where's this money? I was like, hey, I didn't work at this time. They're like, No 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 no, it's because of this And I was like, You could have told me that from the get go, instead of me sweating bullets here and not Knowing if I'm going to provide for my
13: family. (laughs) And though the government mandated pay was a relief, Sean knew it was only temporary.
15: Because I knew that it was two weeks. So after that, I was like, there's nothing else going to come in. I need to find another job because they treated everybody like crap. They weren't telling me anything. And every time I was like, hey, is there something I can do to make money so I can just buy groceries for the kids? And they just kept saying, "Ah, we'll talk about it later. So then I reached out to uh, somebody I knew was hiring, and they're like, yo, we need somebody. So then finally, I was like, all right. I think this is where I closed the book and opened a new book for a new chapter.
13: Fortunately for Sean and his family, this new chapter would be the first step in leaving behind many problems that COVID had burdened them with.
15: In this place, you know, they're still legit. I, I, I work hard, and they know that. But, hey, you get vacation. I was like, whoa, whoa you actually tell me I get vacation? <laughs> so that's what, like I said,
13: that's what I enjoy about this place. After overcoming the mountain of challenges that COVID had burdened them with, it became much easier for the Miranowski family to see things a bit more optimistically. And then when that
15: door opened, I was like, you know what? This little ray of mine, I'm going to let it shine. So I did, and that silver lining became the full-blown sun
13: and the sun has continued to shine on the Mirnowskis. Joanna and Sean are back to work, and Vince, Elliot, and Marceline are starting to go back to school in person. With summer fast approaching, however, everyone's looking forward to spending some quality time outside the house.
0: This is WCRX, and you are listening to COVID nineteen. Where are we now?
19: I'm an occupational therapist, and I work in the school settings uh, with children with special needs.
20: Hello, my name is Sharon Showalter. I work um, with kids that either receive resource services or are in self-contained classrooms um, because they're on the autistic spectrum, they have ADHD or developmental delays of some sort.
21: Early on in the year of 2020, the entire world was hit with the COVID-19 pandemic, causing people from all nations to convert their school curriculum to e-learning. While some enjoyed this transition, many did not. And this has raised concern amongst parents. In the U.S. alone, a recent poll indicated that 61% of U.S. adults felt like students were more likely to fall behind academically, which is 13% higher than the poll shared in July of 2020. With the fear of students falling behind, educators had to bring things up a notch. I found two OTs who work in the Chicago Heights School District to tell their story.
20: They're very distracted. Uh, It's difficult to get their attention. They don't always get online during e-learning, and when they do get online, uh, they're running around the room. The parent or someone's not there to provide support. They don't have proper materials. They're distracted by siblings or TV or music or different things going on in the background. And I just feel that it's not very productive.
19: We are used to doing face-to-face hands-on therapy with students and having to try to do teletherapy through a screen. Um, A lot of our students are younger You know, it's hard for them to even attend for any length of time and then trying to get them to follow directions to do what we need them to do. Often we need parents to help us and they aren't always available to do that. So it's definitely been more than challenging since we've been in the remote learning platform. Remote learning is challenging for regular ed students. And so it's that much more challenging for students that have different special needs. And so we have experienced that firsthand.
21: It appears that switching to online learning has caused instructors to switch their methods of teaching as well. Teaching students the same way they did in person just wasn't cutting it. And the struggle to keep them attentive persisted. Compromise had to be made.
20: Well, I had to be very creative in uh, the activities that I, um, I did. I usually balance um, either a fine motor activity with a gross motor activity. So we would do a lot of gross motor exercises, yoga, deep breathing exercises, um, drawing pictures, um, PowerPoint, like uh, Google Slides, where they would involved themselves in an activity or an active storybook where they would act out the story.
19: You know sometimes you can use incentives so you have to think okay well we're on a screen and even though most children growing up in this age um, their life is very much about screens it's a different type of screen. So they're watching YouTube, they're playing video games, watching, you know, other programs. So say for example, you could use the YouTube platform as an incentive. Okay, if you could do this first, then when we're done, you know, you can watch your favorite, you know, 30 seconds of whatever it is that, you know, is your favorite program or something on YouTube that they like, you know, if the parent is involved, then we can incorporate them, you know, and try to get um, some positive behaviors based on that with the parent support. But that doesn't happen very often. So it's, it's, it's hard for us even just to have a lot of our kids in addition to being special needs, they are uh, low income, so they don't even have, you know, the supplies that you would need to do some of the things that we need to work on. So that can make it challenging also. One thing that we have done is, for example, um, in the chat, if we are needing them to um, respond and say we we would prefer that they respond with paper and pencil, but they don't have that available, then, you know, maybe they could type something in the chat, type a response in the chat. So we've tried to use that. And a lot of times, you're just kind of taking it minute by minute as to what what they're able to do.
21: As changes to teaching were met, the instructors also had to deal with immodest behaviors from their students. When people are left in the comfort of their own homes, they may display actions that they normally wouldn't in public.
20: Well, this one particular student, he told me he was going to go get a pencil and he never came back online and then Um, In another session that I saw this particular student, um, he was playing with a toy that was loud. I asked him um, to turn the toy off. He said it was his sibling that was playing with it. I said, you don't have a a younger sibling. Um, I asked him why he's been absent. He told me he broke his leg, which he did not, and he did not have a cast on then, um, some guy came into the room. I could only see him from the neck down. He smacked him or punched him. At that point, I didn't know what to do. I thought, is this abuse? Should I call the police? I, I I really didn't know what to do in that sort of situation. But the kid was rolling around on the bed laughing. I, the guy seen me online. He seen me talking. And then during this Escapade, somebody walks past the camera and didn't have pants on.
21: And on top of dealing with immodest actions and trying to keep things productive, the work days became longer in the process.
20: Well, I definitely had to put in more hours than a normal work day because I had to be more creative. I had to plan the activities. I had to send out invites for them to meet with me uh, during Google chats, um, I had to send their parents a reminder um, every time I saw them with the link. and I had to I have to do a lot of documentation because you know, every hour a minute of my day has to be accountable for. So um, it did create a longer work day for me. It seems like
19: doing remote learning, you end up spending more time after, school hours because you might think of something, you're home already, you need to just get it done. I feel like when you're in the building working, um, unless obviously you have something specific that you need to work on, it's much easier just to shut it down and go home and then finish your evening. But when you're doing it all day remotely and you're just kind of back and forth, I just find that, you know, we'd be staying on for longer.
21: With a work day extension, you'd think that this would include more pay, but it does not. Their overtime hours began to add up.
19: Um, On average per week, I would say an additional hour or two a day, so five to ten hours more maybe depending.
21: Now that some are able to come back to school for in-person learning some students still chose to stay at home. The staff was offered vaccinations in their district and were required to come back but the days of the screen are still upon them.
20: It depends uh the the kids that I have e-learning with are usually in the Afternoon. So, like on Mondays, I see e learning students. On Fridays, I see e learning students. So, a couple of days throughout the, the week, I still see e learning students on top of the kids that I see in person. Fortunately, most of my students, I, t- I see 25 students, and only about maybe four or five of them are remaining at home the rest have returned for in-person instruction so um that's good that i i'm seeing more most of my kids in person i
19: still have i would say maybe seven six or seven students maybe that have decided um to remain full remote and so those students we still see via teletherapy. And so we still schedule them weekly. Um, The district is giving them an option, you know, through the end of this year anyway. Whoever wants to remain remote can remain remote.
21: With the current availability of vaccines, they expressed their hopes of what this could mean for their district next year.
19: You know, depending on how things look through the summer and the way the vaccine is rolling out in each state, I do feel that by the fall, we should be back to full capacity.
20: I hope we're back to full-time in person um, next year. All the students and the staff are back and uh, hopefully we don't have to you know, wear masks, or, you know, things aren't as strict, Um, restrictions are eased. That's what I'm hoping for for the next school year.
21: Hopefully by the middle of this year or at least the end of this year, we can have a bye-bye COVID party and schools can be filled with the tapping feet of children once again.
19: I hope so. Keep our fingers crossed. That would be awesome. I hope so too.
22: When my destination appeared before me, I noticed a few patrons walking in. With COVID regulations staying six feet apart, I become worried about being received, but I am greeted warmly by an old friend.
5: Hey, how's it going?
22: Good,
23: come on in. I thought we were coming at twelve, so oh, come on in. Got I'm company. sorry. I'm, I'm
15: sorry planet. about that. I've just got somebody in now, so I may have to
23: just kind of put you aside for a couple. That's minutes.
22: That's all good.
23: Okay. Yeah. Um, if you want to go upstairs, you can. If you want That's to wander around for a minute and just look around, and oh, I can give you a
22: it works around. out perfectly. Okay? Thank, Thank you. you. The facility is an old two-flat on Chicago's North Side, surprisingly mm-hmm. spick and span for a rescue cat sanctuary. My bad timing turned out brilliant, enabling me to hang out with the kitties littered throughout every corner of the house, although the faint smell of feline defecation is hard to avoid. I am introduced to volunteers, specifically Maynor Gonzalez, who shows me which cats need love. That's
24: one some cats in that room that leaves a lot of love. Oh. There's two girls on the, on the side, in the room, There's two girls that need a lot of love. They're very sweet cats. And that room. She's a black cat. She, she might be pregnant. She's a little, still a little, like eight months. Oh, okay. She needs a
22: lot love. Touch by an Animal is a non-profit animal care organization where cats from the underserved, elderly, and homeless can find some assistance by way of vet care expenses, food and litter donations, and boarding. But most of the cats that live on location have no owners to return to, waiting to be adopted. After walking around, petting the friendly cats and staring at ones not so friendly, I approach Mayner, who is eager to describe the adjustments made to sanitation over the pandemic. Cool you
24: know, we change, it. we change every, every week thing, everything. Like we had to clean everything with uh, chlorine.
22: Mayner takes me to the back of the house, where a few kittens are eating together. A part of the assimilation process, where unknown cats warm up to each other.
24: They're, they're okay with food. food. We have a we have a whole plate for them. You can see the whole plate, but we have separate plates. Oh, okay. Some of them don't like to eat together. Yeah. They like to be separate, and some of them like to eat together. Like just one, two, and another one,
22: three down there. He describes the ins and outs caring for estranged cats and maintaining a fresh okay. smell for possible adoptees and for Maynard himself.
24: you do the same thing every day, the same thing every day, just to run the house. Okay. I get out by six o'clock every day time. Finish
22: the room and I'm done. Oh, where do you do you stay here? Do you do you, uh, live around here?
24: I live in the oh. house. Nice. Stay there with my cat. Ah. So she didn't mm-hmm. want me to get sick. She was very kind. Very nice. And I said, Well, I have to say goodbye to my room and
25: move
24: here. Ah. I have a night room. I have a night room. The cat doesn't bother.
22: When everything started shutting down at mid-March of 2020, Maynard was struggling to find an apartment, and the sudden arrival and unknown potential of the virus had people trepidatious about introducing a new tenant. The idea was broached for Maynard to live in the facility, and the decision led to an unexpected benefit. And how long have you been working here? Like, almost two years. Two years?
24: And be here in the beginning, one year? Almost one year. Like, yeah, like, the epidemic in March, right? So i here in February, February, March. Uh, what I do now is like I feed them again. Oh, okay. Before, when, we, I, when I leave work, I have to be sure everybody has enough food for the next day. Yeah. with babies take that and they eat every two, every six hours. Mm. So I have to be sure all the babies are okay.
22: While Maynard has lived in the facility, he has been a lifesaver for cats placed on the cold doorstep in the dead of night and maintaining the cleanliness and organization like his own living space with roommates to care for. The volunteer coordinator and chief of staff, Melanie Schoendorf, says that Maynor's involvement has truly been a big help.
23: He was looking for an apartment before COVID had hit, and um, when it hit, I really closed down everything. I mean, we have a wonderful group of volunteers that are here. Nobody could come in because if we're sick, obviously the cats still need to be fed. They still need their litter box changed. They still need medication. So we couldn't afford to have any of that. So uh, we had this room in here. That we kind of converted because Maynard hadn't found an apartment and then he was nervous about finding an apartment because you know going through with mm-hmm. people so he said he brought in his bed his tv uh, you know all this good stuff here and made himself an apartment and it was great because we always had somebody here for emergencies which is great because we do have sometimes cats come in at 10 11 o'clock at night
22: not only was Maynard available to collect cats but to feed and medicate newborns
23: we had 60 kittens here at one point in time so i mean they were just running everywhere like, it was insane. But it's, I'm sure you can imagine 60 kittens eat a lot. Mainer would say, like, he'd go to bed at, like, nine ten o'clock, and they'd need another feeding. So that was really helpful because if we didn't have somebody here, now we're always worrying about, are the kittens going to be okay? Do I need to come back? You know, or setting up a whole new feeding schedule.
22: It seems like the perfect scenario for everyone involved, especially the kitties. But Melanie can see the potential downside of the arrangement.
23: I think there are sometimes that there are positives and negatives to him being here. Mm-hmm. Because of the fact that sometimes uh, if he's here, you know, people assume that he's here and he can do something. Like sometimes when Moray is here, she'll be like, oh, mayna will you help me move this stuff? Sometimes there's it, it can be a little bit hard for him because there's no separation. Yeah. You know, I and and you don't want to sit in your room all day either. Yeah. You know, so I think that... I- um, Sometimes, sometimes I think that's the, the downside to it mm-hmm. for him. So I think there are days where he gets a little annoyed and, you know, he's like, nah, maybe I should find a place. But then I think for the most part, he, he's cool with it.
22: With the rising availability of vaccinations and the peak of the pandemic in our rear view, the need for Maynard 24-7 at Touched by an Animal is becoming less apparent when he may want to live in a place of his own. But for now, Maynard's placement in the organization is making everyone happy especially his own jelly bean, who has made his life all the more fulfilling. It
23: gets him up during the day. It gets him motivated to to do something. Cats and dogs for people who are home alone, have nothing. It gets them out, it gets them walking. It gets them thinking about someone besides themselves. I'm Laura Marcel. I'm married to Nick Marcel here. Um, And my main profession is I am assistant manager in retail.
9: And uh, I'm Nick Marcel, and I am a teacher.
6: Nick and Laura Marcel are one of the many business owners who found themselves having to get creative once the pandemic hit. The Wisconsin natives operate a vending machine business, Green Bay Vending, throughout the greater Green Bay area. While vending isn't their primary source of income, it's something that's benefited them during COVID.
9: We've been going since um, 2017, Uh, we were just looking for uh, a supplementary income, um, something that was, you know, somewhat passive, where we didn't have to necessarily, you know, like opening a store or something like that, you obviously have to be there at all times. Yeah, so we had, um, you know, a product that obviously wasn't selling in our, our machines, because you know, everything was shut down. So we thought, all right, how can we get rid of our product? Um, so we started putting together some, some just snack, we call them snack boxes, um, a, an assortment of, of product. And they had a theme, like a movie night would be for a family that wants to watch a movie. Uh, we had lazy breakfast, which was like pastries and orange juices and coffees. And we had uh, a bunch of different, different types of, um, snack boxes. And we, we originally just put it out to our family and friends on social media saying, Hey, if you're interested, we'll deliver. And the concept really just kind of took off from there.
23: And we are actually able to ship boxes throughout the US now, where we were just delivering in Green Bay, we can send the boxes anywhere.
6: The Marcelles are actually on the precipice of a new American trend. The vending industry is one of the few industries that actually saw an increase in revenue during the pandemic. Now that the pandemic has us more cognizant of social distancing, contactless machines where you don't have to interact with another person is a great way to keep us safe.
9: No, you know, we've actually um, you know, even though there's been a pandemic, we've actually grown the number of locations um over the last over the last year as well. So, um, you know, when it, when it comes to a vending machine, it's it's a safe, you know, th- you, there's no human contact, <laughs> you know, so I think um, you know, in in terms of uh, of you know, going through a pandemic and stuff like that, people found that that was a uh, a nice to add to their businesses. So we've actually grown.
17: The rise of self-service during pandemic has been incredible, okay? It's just a really rising market.
6: That's Kathy Doyle. She's the publisher of two trade magazines for the vending industry.
17: I'm actually the publisher of two sites. One is called VendingTimes.com and the other is called KioskMarketplace.com. And you're seeing more traditional retail adopting vending machines now and self-service more than ever. And um, you mentioned contactless, it's big you know i mean people don't have to depend on coins anymore you know they can use credit they can use contact they can use chip they can use whatever they want so um the the market itself is expanding and 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 if you take both of those markets and put them together you're looking at a 20 billion dollar market in a few years on a global basis
6: according to forbes industries like delivery services online retail and streaming networks all grew as a result of covid as well prior to the coronavirus pandemic we were steadily becoming a more virtual society anyway what are we losing as a result
17: we studied a thousand people uh, who either are vendors in the industry are consumers um, or buyers of equipment okay and we did it across all industries retail banking Restaurant, hospitality, private and public sectors, and and what we found out is that twelve um, percent of the survey respondents actually said they prefer using self service in many retail environments than going, you know, to a sales assistant, uh, which is big in retail.
6: While a reimagined new normal is still uncertain, one thing we can be sure of is the future is catering to what we need now. In a socially distanced, contactless world, the Marcells got creative with their business. It looks as though everyone else will be following the trend soon.
0: This is WCRX, and you're listening to COVID 19. Where are we now?
18: There are more than 73 million people in the world who are fully vaccinated, which means more than half of the world's population does not have a vaccination. Most of those people who don't have it probably have a lot of worries about it, and I can guarantee you that a good percentage of those people that received it probably hesitated for a while because of personal reasons like these two.
16: Hi, my name is Davion Seifert, and I'm 22 years old.
26: Hello, my name is Leonard Wilson, I'm uh, 69 years old.
18: Davion Safford is a young man from the city of Chicago that has a medical history of respiratory issues and has been hospitalized for it a few times.
16: Honestly, I was afraid of getting the vaccine and afraid of what it would do to my body and how my body would respond to it because of my severe asthma.
18: Leonard Wilson is a government worker for the city of Chicago and was on edge to get the vaccine because he was skeptical about if the shot was going to actually address every problem that comes to getting COVID.
26: I was hesitant about taking a vaccination that hadn't been vetted and proven uh, in the way that most other, that all other medications and vaccinations have to uh, be tested and proven and verified as Um, addressing the problems that um, they were created to address without uh, creating other
18: problems. When the first vaccine Pfizer got introduced in December of 2020, people were very happy it was a vaccination. Some were jumping up to receive it right away, but after a week or two when more healthcare workers started getting the vaccine, there were people passing out after 15 to 20 minutes of getting their first dose. This brought fear to the table in an unknowing mind of if this vaccine is going to work or cause more problems.
16: I reacted to the vaccine in a way uh, uh, where my mind wasn't set on it and that I wasn't going to ever get it. What made me not want to get it was just the fact that the fear actually of just how my respiratory system would respond to the vaccine and how severe my body would get sick because I was seeing a lot of people get sick from the second dose of the shot. So I was just, it was just built up fear of of not knowing what would happen.
18: With COVID being a disease that can attack your respiratory system, People with asthma like Davion or elderly people like Leonard were advised to get the vaccines right away because they were the most targeted during the COVID breakout.
26: The news reports and discussion about the virus itself and the vaccination that was created, the administration uh, said that they put the vaccine on a fast track to uh, develop it in a hurry. And of course that's understandable because this was a deadly uh, virus that was confronting the world and our nation,
18: but there was a turning point and a little motivation from family and friends for these two that made them make their final decision.
16: Honestly, my mom helped me a lot. My family and friends helped me a lot and motivated me into getting it and just telling me that it was better. It was better to be safe than sorry, and especially when I. I I like to travel and I like to go places. So to get it, it would, be, it would be smarter and wiser to get it.
26: I do have a good friend that lives in Atlanta, Georgia and practicing medicine there. So um, went without saying, there was no question to me that I need to call Larry, which I did. As it turns out, Larry himself had taken the vaccination earlier that day. And uh, he encouraged me in a really positive and supportive way uh, to make uh, myself available and take the vaccine. As he put it to me was, it was, yes, a risk to take uh, the vaccination because no, it had not been proven in the way that uh, most other vaccines and drugs uh, were by uh, the FDA. But uh, it was a much lesser risk than exposing myself as I have to in the community, and especially at work, to um, being exposed to and being affected by the COVID-19
18: virus. After advice from family and friends and more time to sit down to think on it, they decided to make their final decision and go get vaccinated.
16: I got it around um, February. I got my second dose. at the, around the end of the month of February. Um, honestly, it was what I kind of, not what I expected, but I, because I had seen people were getting sick, so I expected to get sick, but I was it was just that fear of how sick I would get. I was just kind of um, really dazed um, uh, with, due to the second dose and couldn't really go out and do anything. But it wasn't permanently. It lasted uh, for a day, honestly. And the next day, I was feeling back normal to where the point where I could do stuff around the house and um, do the little work that I had to do. So,
18: Even despite Leonard's feelings, he received the Moderna vaccination before going into the year of 2021. His first dose was December 30th of 2020, and finished off with his second dose in January of 2021.
26: After the first shot, I, aside from having a sore shoulder, uh, I would not have known that I had any uh, vaccine. I had no uh, side effects or after effects. Uh, The second shot was a little different. We were advised uh, before we took that second dose that many people were experiencing some mild effects and some uh, mild to moderate effects. And I did experience some effects.
18: Now since Davion and Leonard both been fully vaccinated, they've been living their life without fear. It also has some advice to others who were in that same fear boat as them.
16: I feel great after it. I feel good knowing that I got it and just knowing that I can move um, a little bit more openly and more freely in a way. I would give advice to people that's, Thinking about getting it is to honestly figure out which vaccine. Do your research on a vaccine and figure out what your body will respond to better, which vaccine. And if you're going to be out, it is definitely better to be safe than sorry. So, um, but I wouldn't force it on anyone. I would tell them to think about it and make the best decision for them.
26: Shortly after um, uh, I was vaccinated, I began to, in a very uh, objective way, describe to people the uh, the way the vaccination was presented to me and the way that it affected me and the and the success that I've had with it. And so I would uh, I would advise uh, others who, like I was, are skeptical. Or suspicious, or doubtful, or fearful, you know. Um, in order for all of us to be safe, we have to be concerned with each other's safety, and so uh, that's what motivated me to really want to um, want to get the vaccination.
27: When everything happened. NONE OF US KNEW THE EFFECTS OR CHANGES THAT WOULD OCCUR BETWEEN CHILDREN PARENTS AND THEIR CARETAKERS.
28: I AM THE OWNER OF MONIQUE'S MASTERY LEARNING DAYCARE. I'M THE OWNER OF A HOME DAYCARE FOR ABOUT 20 YEARS NOW. DAYCARE OWNERS AND PROVIDERS
27: had to take on a lot more responsibilities than they were used to.
28: Sometimes I'm the teacher, Sometimes I'm definitely the cook most of the time. I open in the morning, I work throughout the day with um, other staff members um, and I also sometimes oversee closing.
27: Not to mention there were long and demanding hours
28: because the daycare is open for long hours. We open early in the morning at 6 a.m. Technically don't close to 12 a.m., but currently uh, we have some children that's here as late as 10.
27: There was like an immediate shift and everything changed.
28: Pandemic first started, we immediately had to close our doors um, for daycare.
27: There was no roadmap laid out
28: on what to do. Tough um, financially, um, and just tough because um, many of the parents uh, they worked um, and they didn't have um, anywhere to put their children. Many of the clients' needs changed. Were a part of the what you call the first responders or something like that, where they still had to work throughout the pandemic. Um, but then i also had some parents who jobs had also uh... shut down because of the pandemic so the children stayed home with them just the whole uh... process of entering into uh... the daycare environment is different uh... we have to do a checklist every morning uh... we have to take temperature we have to have them wash their hands before they even enter into the daycare space where interacting is going on and uh, learning is going on. Uh, We also have the children uh, take off their street shoes and transfer into uh, inside shoes that they do not wear outside at all. They keep those shoes in a cubby um, every day until they return uh, the next day
27: the cleaning process became even more thorough.
28: We clean and uh, sanitize throughout the day. Uh, We have to take all of our toys that the children have uh, uh, played with or interact with and uh, clean and sanitize everything um, as well as the equipment before opening back up. New safety precautions were enforced to ensure
27: the safety of the children.
28: do wear a mask. I wear a mask every day as well as my staff members. Anyone who work or or come into the daycare space uh, has to wear a mask. Um, I also take my temperature. I have a we also take our staff temperature.
27: The children and parents also have to follow safety regulations.
28: Uh, The children any child that's under I'm sorry over the age of two uh, are required to come in with a mask. So parents, soon as they come from outside, they have to have a mask on before they enter in. I have extra masks, like I said, on hand, in case someone forget this. We have logs um, that we log in every day that takes the child's temperature um, with the date on it. Base E is used to incorporate healthy boundaries between each child. Base where if possible, we will have a chair in between each child when they're eating or interacting in different activities.
27: The children usually are put on a strict schedule.
28: And then circle time, I pretty much go over the calendar. Um, we go over sight words now, simple math, um, the alphabet, the sounds that the alphabet makes. Um, we're counting to 100. We haven't gotten to 100 yet. Right now we're at 170, so we count from 1 to 70. Um, We do our colors, our shapes, um, and then we break out into what I like to call our groups.
27: Despite all of the changes that have occurred, the children are happy, safe, healthy, and able to learn in their environment.
7: Throughout the pandemic, I found it quite hard to meet people, so I did what any young person would do. I turned to social media. I began creating TikTok videos and in return, I had gathered a small following. After I posted a particularly popular video towards the end of January, I received a DM unlike any of the ones I'd gotten before. It read, I saw your TikTok, I wanna be friends. I'm from England, so the time might be a bit weird. Um, My name's Indira Kent.
29: I am 18 and I live in London.
7: Indy, as I call her, and I talk almost every day and try and FaceTime at least once a week. We talk about everything and nothing at the same time, but as I started to get to know her, I quickly became amazed. I work
29: in a cafe in a place called Banstead, which is about half an hour out of London. Um, I work there full time. I do between 35 and 50 hours a week, depending on the week. I was at school at the time. And I don't know what dates it happened for you guys, but it was pretty much exactly like it's been a year and a week for us. Um, it was right at the end of March, and I was I was still at school. I was meant to drop out at the end of March. And by coincidence, we came back, we, were, we had just had like a, um, a holiday, everybody could kind of sense that something was going to happen, we couldn't tell what, but it was like, oh, something big's about to happen. The first lockdown started, and it was very much, I don't know what it was like over there, but there was mass panic. It was kind of, everybody was going to the supermarkets, everybody was buying everything.
7: The UK went under strict lockdown where only one person in each family was allowed to leave the home and only for an essential reason. When
29: it first happened, it was very much a case of no shops were open,
7: just supermarkets, uh,
29: one in, one out at a time. Like you literally had to run around the supermarkets, that sort of thing. And then people realised that they didn't actually care, which is just not a good thing. Like I have to admit, I was probably part of it. But like, yeah, so it was, it was kind of loosened a little bit. People were allowed to have picnics in parks, like that sort of thing, as long as it was outside. And It was summer, so it was fine.
7: But as a result of people relaxing throughout the summer, a second lockdown was enforced similarly to here in the US. And then we got to about
29: October again, because I remember I actually had COVID and it got to right at the end of my um, self-isolation kind of time. And um, it immediately, like, we all locked back down. And that was just like, that sucked. The winter lockdown absolutely sucked. I mean, we're still in it now. We're just heading towards the end of it. Um, But it just sucked because you couldn't do anything, but not just because of
7: COVID, but also because of the weather. Indy was exposed to COVID-19 during a time where she was working regularly again while also balancing a social life. I
29: got it on October 16th a very specific date. I just, I kind of, I remember it because that week I'd went out with so many people and then I came down with this huge fever and I had to get back in contact with everyone and be like, oh my God, I've, I've got I've got COVID. None of them got it.
7: Her winter consisted of work and isolation. And as the holidays came and went, another blow came when her grandfather passed away in January.
29: And I was talking to this woman and she comes in quite regularly and she works at a funeral director's Poor woman, she said she hasn't had a day off since last January because they have not, like she's had her one day off a week, but aside from that, she hasn't had an extra day off since last January simply because it has been so intense for them.
7: For now though, Indy is just excited. Just a few hours ago, we chatted about her first day back to work tomorrow with outdoor seating available. She compared it to the excitement and nerves that come with the first day of school. She hopes to get the vaccine mid June, and after that she doesn't really know.
29: Oh my God, I mean, my life has changed a lot in the last year, like I have to admit, like this time if if we're thinking pandemic wise, um obviously, I said I was going to drop out at the end of March. lockdown then happened, and I ended up finishing school but not doing any exams and yet still getting the qualification. God knows how that happened. then I got a new job, literally on the day I was supposed to leave school, I got the new job. And then I I got with my boyfriend, which is a bit weird. How did that happen? And then I I just, it's strange to be turning 18 and this year as well, it's made me appreciate being young. And then the second I go out, it's like having my 18th birthday all over again. Um, Yeah, it's gonna be really nice, I can't wait. To
25: say COVID-19 has affected us all would be an understatement. One of the industries hit the hardest was construction and the workers of Fraser Interior Trim certainly had their opinions on the pandemic.
30: Definitely fear-mongering. I think they're trying to keep the public scared. Do I think it's as severe as what they make it? No. I think it's just a, a Democrat-motivated tactic. I think it all
31: stemmed from the election. Just like anything with the government, I think, can be blown out of proportions, but there's also reasons why we've learned in history that, uh, like what happened down south with Hurricane Katrina, you know, if the government doesn't give enough warning, everybody bitches about it and says whatever. So, yes, when it comes to stuff like this, they're going to overblow it and take it out of proportion. I don't think that it's blown out of proportion,
32: and I ask myself, if there's fear mongering going on, what's the point of the mongering? I think it was politicized, and I don't think it should have been. I also think there's far too many people these days that ignore science and put a whole lot more credence in conspiracy theories than they really should. I think it's real, I think it's going on, I think it actually has killed over 500,000 people. And I think the response to it, especially in this country, has been extremely poor.
33: I do think it's severe as it is advertised. But then again, I think they make it as severe as they want it to. And I guess and you take a year, take a year out of people's lives, you you take who it's going to affect the most, in my opinion. You take the school age kids right now, elementary kids that need to have that be taught how to socialize. You take the junior high kids, that that's all they know is their friends. You take the high school kids, that ain't been able to graduate the past year and a half. You take the kids that come from poverty, from lower-class families, that's been supposedly getting homeschooled for a year. How many percentage of them kids do you think didn't get no schooling for that year? How many kids is this going to affect 15 to 20 years from now? I feel sorry for my grandkids because in 15 years from now, These past year, year and a half, two years, is really going to affect people. It's going to affect the younger generation
25: more, I believe. Being on a job site is unlike other work. These people have to be together. There is no Zoom call, and that made it a lot more difficult to navigate the information or even misinformation on the virus. To say there were mixed opinions on the job site would be an understatement. When the whole thing started, when the whole thing first got going, um,
32: the lockdowns and the masks... um, people seem to be taking it seriously at first on the jobs i know i was taking it very seriously but i went to a couple of job sites you know with within the first couple of weeks after we got rolling again and there were people not wearing masks and it pissed me off um look dude you know you're you're messing with my stuff you know you're messing with me my health and all that kind of stuff you know it's one thing to say if i get it i get it but it's also a Another thing to say, you know, I don't care about your health enough not to wear a mask. That to me is just rude as hell.
34: I wouldn't say anything too cautious, but have had plenty of people, because when we do service calls, um, which are homes that are lived in, um, they ask us, or at least, I, I think it's coming slowly down at this point, but for, you know, this this last year especially, um, to wear masks when we go to service calls. And a lot of the time, some of our employees are not willing to put a mask on. They feel that that's a violation of their rights. And, you know, as far as I'm aware, I don't think I can make them. So in turn, we had to pick certain people that would wear the mask to these service calls.
25: Now, of course, when it comes to the vaccine, it can be divisive. To me, it seemed to be directly correlated with how severe they thought the virus actually was as to whether or not getting the shot was worth it.
30: Well, I haven't got it, and I have... Don't plan on getting it. I'm at a toss up just for the fact, you know, nobody knows what this vaccine's capable of doing, what the long-term effects are, what is it actually, it's like the flu virus, it changes. So and then what you hear is that, you know, it's only going to be good for one, one round or whatever. You can still get the virus again. So I used to get the flu shot every year. I got deathly sick every year the last five years. I haven't got the flu shot last year or this year, and I haven't got the flu like I normally have. So my thing is, getting it, is it going to make me deathly sick like uh, the flu shot has? Yeah, that crosses my mind. So that kind of deters me away from getting the
34: vaccine. If you compare it to any other kind of illness or, you know, any kind of I don't know, whatever you want to call it, you know, any other, you know, like smallpox and, you know, any other kind of disease like that, they've done vaccines, and what happened? They went away. I mean, you know, it takes the majority of people to get it, and until that happens, we're going to be masking it up.
25: Now, what about the aftermath and the long-term effects? For these workers, the after effects could change their way of life for years to come.
30: The long-term effects, yeah, economy-wise, it's affected us, um... Do I think people change for washing their hands? Stuff. Yeah, I see it. I know it. Uh, even, you know, here we are. We don't have the mask mandate anymore, but a lot of places are still requiring masks to enter. I think that's going to be around for a long time.
31: I think within the next, yeah, two or three months, I think things will start, you know, at least getting 75% better, whether it's crowds, you know you know, at eateries or games or, or whatever. I think we're going to start getting back to a little semblance of, of normal long-term effects. Yeah, there's going to be long-term effects, definitely. I mean, just the economy. I mean, it's already caused a lot of issues. I mean, it's just in our, our business. I mean, we have vendors that were out so long that now they're so backlogged that, you know, people can't keep up. It's caused, you know, other people just, you know, it's a waterfall keeps going down and i, I believe the long term with all the stimulus they've they've put out which has been great but you know eventually that's got to come from somewhere and people got to pay for it so i think yeah over time we're gonna take a hit on the economy
33: probably the new way of life i mean you'll have your percentage of people that will go back to normal and say they're going to do normal whatever normal is no matter what but you're going to have Probably a bigger majority of people that this is going to be somewhat of a regular way of life now.
25: For these people, COVID is impacting everything they do. No matter where they stand on the issue, they believe America may not be the same if it doesn't take control of the situation.
32: We better get our heads out of our asses. Stop believing in things that don't make a lot of sense. And start looking for the evidence of the truth. I mean, we just, you know, you gotta ask questions. You gotta be curious. You've got to be willing to learn new things. And you've got to be willing to deal with the present. You've gotta be willing to do that. Because if you're just gonna bitch and moan, and that doesn't do anything,
30: live your life. Don't let some government control you. Just stand behind what you believe in. You know, yeah, you got Fauci and these others that's telling us one thing one day and telling us a so totally different the next. So do what you believe. Do what you think's the best. Um, trust the people in the professional field that you do trust. You know, if you're close with your doctor or whatever. But the media, I, as far as uh, news media, I think they hide a lot of stuff. They're not fair. They're not they're partial to one side.
34: You know, I think for a lot of people I've, you know, I, I go back to, you know, I, I've seen, seen the memes of, you know, people saying, well, you know, I, I've been fighting for a year to not get something. So, you know, why would I get, you know, the vaccine when I, I haven't gotten it all year. And, you know, maybe you haven't and maybe, You haven't been directly affected, but it's not always about you. Sometimes you have to do things for other people, for the people that have the crappy immune systems, for people that are older or, you know, can't fight off, you know, the diseases. Sometimes getting vaccinated isn't to protect you. Sometimes it's to help protect the other people, you know, that that need, you know, that more protection, you know, you might live through it, but, you know, maybe somebody's 80 year old grandma or grandpa doesn't. And had you been vaccinated, maybe they wouldn't have got it. So, you know, t- to me, if you just get it done, we can move along. Hopefully things can go somewhat back to normal. You know, it, it, there will always be a kind of new normal to some degree. But, you know, just do it. it, it if it's not for yourself, it's for other people.
35: The way you progress against adversity is to adapt. That's what a lot of artists had to do when the COVID-19 pandemic forced a standstill in March of 2020. Chicago artists Jay Post and Jimmy Gordon of Outpast Midnight had many hopes and opportunities before the pandemic hit that would have benefited their career. Uh... You know as a chicago and what we were doing at the time um it was a lot
36: of stuff happening in the city mm-hmm. if you were here you know um you know open mics were happening uh we were helping officiate l tab um we were performing we were pretty much before the pandemic like top of the year 2020 from i say january like top of february we were pretty much booked through august yeah we were in our teaching artist bag
37: and as rappers in Chicago, I feel like the open mic circuit and the, um, the culture that we have here is very important to maintaining your image and being seen as far as just getting your music and letting people know what's up. So as soon as that evaporated, we immediately had to adapt.
35: AMP is a student-ran record label at Columbia College Chicago. That gives artists chances to grow their career and develop their artistry
37: yeah as far as the amp situation goes we were we were very excited to start working with amp because at the time it was my my sophomore year it was it was jay's freshman. Yeah, jay's freshman year when we had both um been put on we had been introduced through amp by our manager desiree and we were um you know we were new we were just expecting to see how a school run label ran
35: south by southwest is a music festival held in texas annually that showcases artists across the country that are making impacts in their local scene. But South by Southwest never happened that year due to the pandemic.
37: And then they when they told us about the South by Southwest opportunity. That was a jump. You
36: feel me? We were there. Yeah, we were so ready. We were ready to go, ready to go. And on top of you feel me, the opportunities that AMP was providing, um getting in a lab and meeting you can be the new artist and uh our label mates at that time
4: uh, was actually
36: actually being able to collab with people
37: like other sure. artists and try to form bodies of work that that was great you know i'm always jumping for that even mm-hmm. um but then when the pandemic crashed down it just felt like like we was really finna take off and next thing you know just just circumstance, you know?
35: Yeah. With the music business being a $50 billion industry that makes half of their revenue from live performances, many people lost their job, like venue owners, security guards, touring staff, live sound operators, and everyone else who makes those performances happen. Artists began to lose hope, money, and motivation after that, which also caused streaming revenue to take a 11% dip. Artists had to find new ways to stay relevant and continue to fund their career.
36: Even though we were, we had a, a bunch of momentum going. Um, strangely, like oddly, we needed this pandemic because uh, through the pandemic, not only did Post and Jimmy rebrand to Out Past Midnight and opium, you feel me? Um, we dropped more content. Uh, we started reaching more people. We started doing more things. We dropped our first, um, our first line of merch. You feel me? Uh, and so, even though we necessarily lost the physical space, Um, being in front of people, connecting with crowds. It was like we were still finding a way to reach people.
35: With the increased uses of remote technology, artists had to use the resources they had to still progress their career. That may have been using Twitch or Instagram Live to do virtual shows and Q&As, or being more socially active on social media, making TikToks or memes for Twitter. You know, and also just... Seeing how other artists
37: that were bigger than us were adapting to the situation with virtual shows and stuff like that, it inspired us to try to get more creative. Just in general, like how people see us on the screen, you know, social media became like the lifeline, I guess, for posting for um, Out Past Midnight, posting Jimmy, to just be the main form of how people see us, and just trying to be more intentional with how we post and how we show people our art.
36: For sure. Man. You know, with social media, they don't necessarily get that that vibe that you get when you enter a room. Like, artists are really, you feel me, artists are energy vendors. Mm-hmm. We're real good at walking into a room, and you feel me, you getting that feel from us. Um, and doing that over a screen <laughs> uh, is, you feel me, exceedingly difficult. Yeah,
37: we've seen many people try and fail. and But we've seen a lot of people succeed, too, trying
36: to adapt to the virtual world. Exactly. And I feel like we got it in our heads that, if you're producing and you're, you are you feel persistent through this global pandemic, <laughs> they just can't tell you not the truth. <laughs> um, so any artist that's put out anything in the past, you feel me, past year, past year and a half, kudos to
35: you. Many people felt that there were bigger matters at hand than making music at the time. People were still losing their lives to the virus, but also facing prejudice, brutality, and inequalities.
36: We were doing our thing with we one mixtape and then boom pandemic you in the crib three months actually six months Mm -hmm. actually a year (laughs) um you feel me and it was very very um hard especially at the top of it to to get inspired to be creative um also what you feel me the social climate what was happening it's like corona took away everything except racist cops Mm -hmm. um And then we have, you for me, we were having problems with the city officials, with CPS schools, teachers were striking. Mm -hmm. It was just so much that crashed down at one point in time. It was like, man, is it even the right climate to be, you for me, producing art? Mm -hmm. And it's like,
37: my mother is a CPS teacher. So just seeing how that was happening, you know, I always worry when it strikes, especially being a college student. You know how that falls through. So main form of income evaporates because people want to mess around with public servants, like, you know their their pay that
36: they deserve that's not cool and then Lori lightfoot want to give all our city's funds to cpd so it's just like we can't catch a break you feel me um but we finally got to a point where it was like okay let's make some music um what is there to say what do we want to say what do we want to convey um at that point it was
37: literally just missing seeing our friends vibing our summer was robbed of us
35: Outpast Midnight is just one of the many people who had a setback but still grinding to see success as musicians during this global pandemic. Opportunities lost, money lost, collaboration dwindled, but that didn't stop art from being made. The way how you progress against adversity is to adapt.
36: <laughs> um, but honestly, I feel like everything happens for a reason. Yeah. Uh, even though we didn't have multiple M-drops, I feel like Preach on SoundCloud is um, was a mark of an era, mm-hmm. you feel me? Um, so it's like, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to keep doing our thing. We're going to keep persisting. I ain't never said we was going to stop. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> you feel me? So, yeah, that's life in a pandemic, y'all.
0: It takes a lot to put together a documentary like this. Here are the students involved.
3: Matthew Mitchell,
0: Ethan Ford,
3: Coda Kalma
0: Jesus Mario Negrana-Manueli, Jacob
25: Varen, JT Doyle, Jory Roberts,
6: Shelby Hawkins. This is Ashtar LaWando.
21: Dylan Case,
6: Tatiana St. Clair.
21: This is Nicholas
0: Stroud.
13: Jesse Healy,
7: Abby McFarland.
0: Paul Dipping.
7: Dorian Sumwalt.
0: You've been listening to COVID-19, Where Are We Now? A documentary produced by the students in the radio and documentary class, Spring 21, here at Columbia College, Chicago. I'm Dave Berner, Associate Professor in the radio program. Thanks for listening. This is WCRX.